Ramble. Bada bing, bada boom. June of 2014, something very, very strange happened in South Korea. A man without a home was found dead in an apricot orchard. He's wearing an Italian-made jacket, like a suit jacket, a very nice jacket. He was found outside this orchard of apricots with this book next to him, an empty bottle of shark liver oil, which is commonly used as a health supplement in South Korea. Well, not commonly, just sometimes. Oh, it's like the yeah. fish oil pills? Yeah, but it's like shark liver. It's not recommended. Most people don't use it, but it's kind of in like a niche health sphere. People use it. Along with several empty bottles of alcohol nearby him, just dead in this apricot field. The fact that his body was so badly decomposed and the way that he was found, there were rumors that he was so decomposed that his head was separated from the rest of the body. Now, the police said that they were pretty certain that they were dealing with a man that was without a home. But once they ran some tests, they realized they could not have been more wrong. The dead body in the orchard belonged to a billionaire. But not just any billionaire, the nation's most wanted man. There was currently a $50,000 reward for anyone who knew even just information about this billionaire's whereabouts. And this apricot field was just 1.5 miles away from his holiday home. So it makes sense. It's the billionaire, right? But the authorities said, no, 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 we, we searched inside his holiday home. We found two suitcases filled with cash that totaled to about a million dollars USD. Both were hidden behind a fake wall that led into a panic room. He must have hidden here while we were searching the place a week prior, and, and that makes sense, but it doesn't make any sense why he was dead. Did he take his own life? Was he killed? Was there a foul play? His death was so mysterious, it led conspiracy theorists to believe that he was still alive. Hmm. Maybe he faked his death. Maybe this was a decoy body in place of the billionaire, and that billionaire is out on the run. I mean, if money can buy freedom... He's got all the money in the world. And as mysterious as his death is, his life was even more mysterious, if you can believe it. This billionaire was known as the billionaire without a face in South Korea. He was incredibly elusive, reclusive, incredibly private, but he held art exhibits all around the world at places like the Louvre. He had a gala thrown in his honor at the Palace of Versailles. He had his art displayed at the Grand Central Terminal in New York City. He was connected to some of the biggest politicians, government officials, business owners. And at one point, he owned the domain www god.com mm -hmm. wow and yet not many people knew his name see you know what this reminds me of where people are like you think jeff bezos and elon musk run the world there's a whole set of billionaires we probably don't even know exist that are not in the public eye that cnn and fox don't write about and those are the people that are making moves this is kind of reminiscent of that. Nobody really knew his name. Nobody really even talked about him. He fell under the radar up until his death. But it seemed like he was connected to a lot of dark stuff. Firstly, he founded a church that is accused of being a cult. He was connected to two of the biggest tragedies in South Korean modern history. One from a few decades ago, where 32 bodies were found dead and tangled in an attic, just tied up together. And more recently, the billionaire was connected to the company that owned this Hewar ferry. The boat that sank killing over 300 people at the very least, I mean, directly and indirectly. And he was actually on the run from being investigated because of this Hewar ferry incident when he was found mysteriously dead. 
Okay. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about the first tragedy, the 32 bodies in the attic. But on Wednesday's episode, this upcoming main episode, we're going to do a deep dive onto this Hayward Ferry tragedy. And with these two episodes, you're going to see how one billionaire was suspiciously, mysteriously linked to both cases of mass death. I mean, it feels straight out of one of those crazy conspiracy horror movies or no sleep stories, but it really happened. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com. But one source for this case was the Netflix documentary that we also used for the JMS cult. It's called In the Name of God. Now, it's the Five Oceans episode, and you can tell throughout the entirety of the episode that Netflix is hinting at stuff. They're hinting at a lot of connections between the Five Oceans incident and the billionaire, but they never really flat out say what that connection is, probably for the reason that I'm about to read you a legal disclaimer, okay? For legal reasons, I have been advised to say that before we get started, two things to remember. Yu Byung-un, the billionaire in today's case, is not the de facto owner of this Hewar ferry. He's connected in certain ways, but he is not the de facto CEO and owner. And the Evangelical Baptist Church, which was created by this billionaire, is not legally connected to the Five Oceans tragedy, the 32 bodies in the attic that we're going to be discussing today. Even if we make any sort of connections between these two entities or these two people does not mean that it's an insinuation of liability and guilt or otherwise. Which also leads me to say, if anything happens to me, <laughs> I'm kidding, but I'm only half kidding because I talked to my parents about this family, this billionaire family, and my dad was like, yeah, they're really scary. Good luck. Goodbye. And he hung up on me. I'm like, they're not <laughs> listening to my calls, dad. Like that's, wow. maybe they are. Yeah. Because they're an international family. Well, your dad really loves you. Huh? Yeah. He has no care in the world for me. He's like, got two grandkids. I'm like the least of his worries now. So... Let's get started before I get more white hairs on this head. The Five Oceans Incident. August 29th in 1987. So we're going back, but trust me, it's all going to come back together to 2014. And I would not be discussing this case if it wasn't related to what's going to be talked about on Wednesday. August 29th of 1987, it was an incredibly rainy day. A homicide detective by the name of Detective Sam gets a call to head to this tiny little factory out near the mountains. He wasn't really told what was going on. Nobody was like, you need to get over here. We've got 32 bodies in an attic. He's just told, rush through the rain. I don't care what it takes. You get here ASAP. So he drives through the rain, he's got his sirens on, and he knows that the factory is belonging to a company called Odeyang, otherwise translated to Five Oceans. So I'm going to be calling them the Five Oceans Company. Now, when the officer steps inside this factory, all the lights are off. It's like almost an abandoned factory. It doesn't look like it's being used anymore. He notices that there's a bunch of people gathered, other detectives that were closer to the scene. There's reporters gathered. There is news footage of this that is um, constantly, I, I would not post it on here because I don't think it's appropriate, but there's a lot of crazy news footage and it's in the Netflix doc and you can even hear one of the reporters saying, I mean, there's no way we're going to air this anyway. It's that bad. 
the, the scene? Yeah. So there's news cameras everywhere, news anchors. I mean, just a mess. He notices that the ceiling, so he's in the factory cafeteria, and he notices that the ceiling has already started to be disassembled. There's workers there taking apart the ceiling so that they can have this giant hole. And he's like, why do we need a giant hole? What's going on? There's this ladder leading up to this hole. So he grabs a flashlight and he starts climbing up this ladder because he's the head detective of this case now. He pokes his head through the ceiling into the attic and it's just one big open space. It's not big. It's not tall. It's not furnished. It's unfinished. It's what you imagine an attic would look like. And he shines his flashlight around. And he said in his decades of being an officer, even after this case, he had never seen anything like that. He pans his flashlight and he sees 32 bodies, all dead, all stacked up on top of each other, tangled apart. Like just, it was very, very unsettling. The sight wasn't just this pile of bodies. It wasn't like this dumping ground with a mountain of bodies. He said it felt almost methodical in a sense, which made it even more unsettling. There were two piles of bodies that were kind of diagonal from each other. So one pile of bodies here with like 12 people, another pile with 19 bodies. And then in the center, almost directly in the center of these two diagonal piles was a man hanging from the ceiling. There was a rope around his neck. It's just... The whole thing is strange. Everyone had their wrists and ankles tied. Their nostrils and mouths were stuffed with some sort of cotton or toilet paper. In total, it was four men, 28 women, and a total of 32 people dead in this attic. I mean, this is the biggest mystery that South Korea had seen in Geez, I don't know how long. Like, how do 32 people die in one place at the same time? There was no natural disaster. It wasn't some sort of disease, no fire, no earthquake. It just doesn't even make sense. The detective said the one thing that kept getting to him th throughout the entire investigation is, how do 32 people lay there and hear each other next to each other, hear their neighbor dying? They themselves are dying. Nobody tries to stop it. All 32 people just let it happen is kind of how the scene was set up. He doesn't understand. So more puzzling is the man in the center of the attic was hanging from his neck. But the mysterious part was he was on his knees. The attic ceiling is not that tall. So you could presume that he died by hanging himself, but he was on his knees. So he could have just stood up. Mm -hmm. So he chose not to stand up. Which is pretty rare, right? Yes. So Human, he's saying, even yeah. yes, even though, let's say you make the decision to, you're like, I don't want to be here anymore. But even in the last moments, typically people might freak out and their self-preservation kicks in, their survival mode kicks in. And he was on his knees. He could have just stood up. He's saying that's very, very uncommon. So the main question that investigators had was, I mean, of course, what everyone was thinking, is this a mass suicide? Is this some sort of murder-suicide event that happened? Or is this just mass murder? Did someone kill these 32 people and the killers are on the run right now? Because that's a whole different type of investigation. So they're trying to figure out who are these people? Would someone out there even want these people dead? And all of these answers lies in one person, one woman amongst the 32. It was a 48-year-old woman by the name of Park Sunja. We're going to call her Park. She's at the center of this case. She is the one person in that attic that every single other 31 people are connected to. She is the middle of the web. Is she the one hanging? No. 
Oh, she's one, not hanging. She's no. in the pile. Yes, a man was hanging. He worked in the factory. He was the factory manager. Was hanging. She's just in one of the piles. What oh. makes it even stranger is that three of her kids, all three of her kids, were in the attic and dead. The only person that survived from her family was her husband, who was not in that attic. Did a, they find the husband immediately? Then? Oh yeah, and he's saying, "I'm a victim. My whole family died. So why are you guys questioning me?" I'm telling you, this gets very, very thick and crazy, and I need you to understand the whole event before we get into the ties with the billionaire because it's so unexpected. You're going to listen to this, think, "Oh, this sounds like a cult story," but trust me, I never even knew where this was going. So she's found dead in the attic along with her three kids. The police immediately start investigating her because she is the special link amongst all of them. So let's dig into Pak Sunja and a little note left behind. Now, these are the only clues that the police have initially. Is Pak Sunja, the woman in the center, and a little torn note. So there were torn pieces of paper all over the attic, just as if someone ripped it apart and threw it around. So they picked up each one. They went back to the station. They start piecing it together. And it's a note. There's writing on the front and the back. And the most important part reads, Keep your mouth shut. She's already unconscious. Five people died in only four hours. Just stay quiet. I plan this out. Endure it with his guidance. I think everyone will die today. What kind of note is that? I mean, so strange. There's actually another note that's found, but we're going to discuss that later. So who is Park and what is this whole event? Park is a CEO of a massive company in the local area of Taejeon. Now, when this whole case starts unfolding, it actually started with an investigation from the police, an investigation of fraud. So this couple comes into the police station like, a week before the bodies are found. And this couple, they look beat up. They've got bruises, scratches. I mean, they've got a busted lip, a black eye. And they sit down and they tell the police, you'll never believe what happened. So there's this company. I'm sure you've heard of them. Odeyang, the Five Oceans Company. So they're a trading company, which means you can invest with them. And it's like a an investment firm. You invest with them, they promise you returns and you get your money back and it's this whole thing. And I trusted them. So I invested $500,000 of my money, my whole life savings, right, officer? Now, I was promised 40% returns. 40%, which is insane. If you hear anyone in the investment world promising you 40% returns, it's a Ponzi skin. Yeah, you better run the other way and call the cops because something very, very shady is going on. So he's saying, me and my wife, we invested 500K. We were expecting 40%. We got $0. Nothing came back. So we're like, well, we need our life savings back. This feels like a scam. We go to Odeyang, this very professional compound. You know, they've got office buildings. All the employees are everywhere. It's like a factory. We go in. We're like, can we talk to the CEO? We sit down with her and we say, listen. We love what you're doing, but, you know, we got to pay the bills. Can we get our money back? Pak Sunja looks at them, calls like seven employees over, and they beat the couple an inch of their life. Not only do they beat them, but in the end, they force them to sign a waiver, basically forfeiting their rights to their $500,000 initial investment plus the returns that they were promised saying that all debt has been cleared, that they just gave Five Oceans this money for funsies. So they're like, look at this. I was forced to sign this. Look at the state of my face. They ran to the police station immediately when they were released from Odeyang. And the police decide to open a formal investigation into this company. And they were pretty surprised to find out that this company was a reputable company. 
I think that they were expecting some sham company. Like one look at it, you're like, that's a scam. How did they not know? This company was well known in the Taejeon area as a very decent, excellent sized craft business. So they have one department of their company is the trading business, like the investment business. But the main side of their company, well, they say, is their craft business. So they've got factories in Daejeon and they have all these employees who make these traditional Korean pieces of knickknacks. Sometimes it's jewelry boxes. Sometimes it's, you know, like wooden toys. And it's almost like a souvenir company. They sell it to tourists who want to take home a piece of historical Korea with them. So people freaking love them. In fact, Odeyang was known as one of the best companies in the area. They constantly won awards for their craftsmanship, for their business practices. I mean, they were killing it. On top of that, the CEO, Park Sunja, the one that was found in the attic, she was called the mother of orphans. How do you even get a nickname like that, okay? How do you even get a nickname like that? She's like one of those uh, tech billionaire scam artists. Like that's the vibe that she gives me. The way that she set up her company was she wanted to be all about the employees. So she set up all these dorms, these living quarters near her factory, on the grounds of her factory, like right next to the factory. You are welcome to live there as my employee. You and your whole family can live here for free. I want you to just focus on work and not stress about bills. I provide food. I provide housing. You can move in. You can bring your children. You know why you can bring your children? Because while you're working, we've got this massive children's compound where we teach your kids, we house them, we feed them, we do dance lessons with them. We have all these extracurricular activities with them. And you know what? We even have a ton of orphans in there. I love orphans. That was like her sh- stick okay she's like i love orphans i want to help orphans anytime she was in any sort of interview she played the whole i'm rich okay i'm rich i'm a ceo of odeyang my husband is a government official we're very wealthy but i don't care about money because she's like such a pick me she says i don't care about money or stocks or fashion or jewelry or cars i just care about giving back There's this one interview where she tries to force a tear out. And she says, I just don't want to live in a world where children have to worry about where their next meal comes from. How can I wear nice things when there are kids out there who can't even afford water, food, textbook? So everyone is like, oh my God, Odeyang is like the nicest company ever. And the CEO is like the mother of orphans. She's amazing. I want to work for this company. Look at how she treats her employees. She was praised by the locals as being a great businesswoman. She would even have people come in and film the factory and you would see all these factory workers that were making all these little knickknacks. You would see the orphans singing and dancing and being like, I love Mrs. Park, right? Well, guess what? You guessed it. It was all a scam. The whole thing was a freaking scam. So from the get-go, these employees were not even being paid. These were free laborers. You're like, why would they work what? for free? Park Sun Ja was a very manipulative, cunning woman. So most of these employees worked for free. When they lived on the grounds, they said it was very, very strange because they weren't even allowed to talk to each other. You work for Odeyang, I'm your wife. We're not allowed to talk to each other. It's so strange. She would separate couples. She would separate the kids from her employees, 
the families. She would throw them into the little orphan dorms, I guess. And she would even go on TV and be like, look at this orphan. Orphan, what's your name? Tell them you're an orphan and tell them what your name is. So the kid would be like, uh, my name is Stephanie. And the parents would be watching on TV like, wait, wait, wait. I'm an employee and that's my kid. And why is my kid on TV acting like she's an orphan right now? And why is Park telling her to tell the world that she's an orphan? I'm her mom. What's going on right now? So all of these things will later come out. But at the time, nobody knew. The locals are just looking at her like, she's bringing business to our community. This is great. And when she opened up her trading business, her investment firm, everyone was all about it. Like the locals were all about it. Her employees almost became salespeople. Her employees stopped working in the factory, which side note, they never worked in the factory because just like how her little orphanage was a scam, her factory was a scam. They were drop shippers before there was drop shipping. All of those Korean knickknacks they said were handmade by these employees were purchased from wholesalers and sold at double the amounts claiming mm. to be handmade. They were not. So instead of a factory, it was just a warehouse. A storage unit. A storage <laughs> unit. Yeah. And then all those uh, people now looking back at the videos, like the promo videos of all the factory workers making the thing, they're like, you know what? That's true. They're always in the finishing steps where they're just like wiping it off. <laughs> they're like, they, we're doing QC quality control. You know, that's what we're doing right now. That's the step. It's just interesting. But people didn't know that. Locals didn't know it at the time. They heard that Odeyang was open for investment. And all these locals are like, I don't know anything about the investment world. I couldn't buy a stock. I just don't know anything. Like, I don't know that world. And now this woman who is praised as being the mother of orphans is saying that not only will she take your money and give you a fat return, a 40% return, but she's saying that all this money is being invested into businesses that give a lot of their profits to orphans and to giving back to the world. It's almost like three birds, one stone. I mean, you cannot come up with a better investment situation than that. You're helping the world and you're making 40% on your money? Are you kidding me? People start throwing their money at Odeyang and everything was done very professionally. Odeyang would even give them these slips, these very official looking slips that said, thank you for your money. You are now a creditor to Odeyang. We owe you your initial investment plus interest. So they're like, that's gotta be serious. Odeyang at one point had close to $80 million dollars that they brought Damn. in in investments in this little small area of Daejeon. This is not even like Seoul, Seoul. Wow. That's like, a lot. And it's this was back in the day. Yeah. And this is, you know, when you're talking about areas like that, you're not talking about Seoul elites that are just throwing whatever cash they have laying around. You're talking about families' entire yeah. savings. Everyone trusted Park Sunja, and because her husband was a government worker, her name had a lot of weight to it. But it's like a bank run happened, okay? 1987, around August, the couple goes and asks for their money back. She beats them up. Turns out they're not the only couple that asked for their money back. A whole bunch of people started seeing that they were not getting any returns from Odeyang and they wanted to pull out their initial investments. And the walls are coming down on Park. Even the police knew it. The police were like, this is not even a regular simple fraud case. We're probably going to give this to the feds. Like we're going to bring in some higher level people for this because it's that bad. So a week before she ends up in the attic, they bring her into the police station to question her. They're like, we just want to ask you questions about your shop and what's going on, you know? 
and she sits there, and they say it's the police said it's very fascinating. She's called the mother of orphans, and I'm not saying that you can judge a book by its cover, but she just didn't look like the mother of orphans. You know, I don't know what you expect when you see the mother of orphans, but she was very. In Korean, we call it like sege boyo, like yaimipke boyo. It's very um, sharp features, very thin, and kind of looks lanky. She's not necessarily tall, but she looks very thin and bony, and has such sharp features, and her eyes are so sharp. And they like just pierce through your soul. That's the feeling. And it just didn't feel warm or compassionate. It didn't feel like someone that was like, oh, I'm so sorry, officer. There must be a misunderstanding. Like, what's going on? So the whole time she's sitting there looking at them as if she knows something that they don't know. And the police keep grilling her. And dramatically, out of nowhere, she just faints. The lady just faints. The authorities think that the whole thing was staged, that she was faking it. But for legal reasons, they can't be like, hey, lady, stop faking it. For legal reasons, they got to take her to the hospital. So they take her to the ER. And I don't know, maybe because she's like a 50-year-old woman and she's skinny and frail and looks like an ajuma. They're like, we don't need police guards. We don't need to do that. Well, they did. Because she walked right out of the ER and vanished with 80 of her closest associates from the company. They vanished without a single trace. You know what they also vanished with? $18 million of corporate funds. Authorities go to the factory and the dorms of Odeyang, like the main compound, and they start asking around. Everyone that's left over is like, I don't know what you're talking about. They're shrugging their shoulders like, I don't know where she went. I don't know. You don't ask me. Felt like they knew. Yeah. So... But they gotta know something. Exactly. Or like, which direction did they go? At yeah, least, there's right? 80 people. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, not not, even... that's not like one person slips out. Like, oh, yeah. I was so distracted. 80 people. So they get word that Park was found hiding in the attic of one of her more obscure factories near the mountains. The police rush there and outside they spot a van that also is belonging to Odeyang. So maybe, just maybe she is in there. She was. But she and 31 others were found dead. And this is when all chaos breaks loose. Wait, that means what? 50 people got away? Yeah, so I think that they... Um, I think she probably left with a certain number of people. I'm sure a big number of the other 50 were just people that were running. They were like, I don't want anything to do uh. with this. I don't know what's going on. I gotta go. So uh, Park could no longer protect her secrets anymore because she was dead. And slowly, all of her secrets start coming out and that, one of her biggest secrets, is going to connect to the dead billionaire from 2014. Oh yeah, okay. So we've touched on the shady business practices of taking in the investor money and promising all these returns and none of that works, right? But it's alleged that Park's company was just a fake company. It was a front for a religious organization. There were rumors floating around that Park and her employees were not a company, it was a messiah and her followers. This was a church that was parading around as a corporation. Why do people think that? A lot of victims came forward and said, I applied to work at this company and someone recommended that I work here. I thought it was a factory. I start working here and she's going around telling us that she cured her own cancer back in the day by prayer alone and that she is the messiah, the conqueror of the five oceans. And if we disobey her, we'll all go to hell. And I was like, whoa. I thought this was a nine to five that I was signing up for. What the hell is going on? All the other employees were like deep in it. 
That's what some of the victims said. These employees were like, yes. And they later found out that some of these employees weren't even getting paid. They weren't even getting paid. They were just free laborers. The victim said, you know, it started to get really weird when she forced us to ask her permission to leave the grounds of the factory. She also had something called sin time, like repentance time to repent for your sins. It happened randomly, probably like once a month. We'd all be gathered in the gym room, almost like a company meeting, but we would be forced to slap each other in the face, like just sit there and like slap each other around to repent for our sins. It was a lot. She was also had this uh, apocalyptic streak about her. She just really felt like the world was ending. And she felt like everyone needed to obey her to be saved. She also was quoted to say, the factory is heaven. And if you want to go to heaven, you work here for free. Which, so all these little insinuations of her being a part of a religious cult or being a cult leader start coming out. And the investigators are like, okay, we need to take this into account. And this is when we see two very popular theories form of what happened in Odeyang. Because to this day, I don't think there's anyone that can say with 100% certainty that they know what happened up there in the attic. That they know what happened to these 32 people. So the first route comes from prosecutors and the police and the formal Justice Department of South Korea. So the investigators had found 100 pieces of cotton and fabric that had been stuffed into the victims, the 32 people's mouths in the attic. And everyone assumed that the pieces of fabric would be laced with some sort of toxic chemical or something that wasn't compatible with life. And that is what killed everyone, right? That's what everyone's thinking. But no, they were all clean. There was no sign of any sort of toxic substance, which is very, very odd. I mean, these pieces of fabric were shoved very deeply even into the nostrils of these 32 people. The autopsies of all 32 people showed that all of them had ligature strangulation marks. They died from manual strangulation, meaning that someone had tied a rope around their neck, tightened it, and started pulling and pulling and pulling until they were no longer alive. It was manual. It's a lot of labor to do that to someone, and it's it's a very painful way to go. Yeah, it's intense. Yeah. Takes forever. Takes forever. So much struggle and... Wow. And there's 32. 32. Now, the prominent theory that the prosecution ran with is that someone in the group or a few people of the group had killed everyone. And these people were not resisting. They were open to it. They were almost waiting in line, waiting for their turn because they're thinking this is some sort of religious event, right? A ritual, a sacrifice of their own lives, if you will. So these few people went around tying the ropes around the others, killing them. And at the very end, probably, they presume, the factory manager was the last one to die. And that's why he hanged himself in the middle of the attic. Now, the theory is that Park Sunja had to die because she was $80 million in debt and the creditors were knocking on her door. She's probably going to go to prison. So these followers, they wanted to die with her. But there are reasons that that theory it doesn't make sense. And this is the theory that's legally accepted today. There's some contradictions. There's some questions that even the detectives that worked on this case that agree with this theory, that agree with the final you know, decision, are kind of confused about. So first of all, Park Soon Jao was the first one to die when they looked at time of deaths. This is very unusual. Experts who study religious group killings say, no, Absolutely not, unless the leader dies from an accidental death or natural causes, like they have a terminal illness or old age, they are never the first one to go. Especially in an event like this, they will make sure that everybody else is dead before they themselves die. That doesn't make sense. Another odd detail was that there were 28 women and four men. 
12 of these women were found with evidence of semen in their bodies. So either they were abused by these four men before they passed away, or they voluntarily interacted with men in that attic that has no rooms, is an open floor plan. And this is August in Korea. There was no AC up in that attic. It's like 90 degrees up there. Whoa. It just didn't make sense, especially because Park Sunja, her two sons were in the attic as well as her daughter. And mm-hmm. she was found with semen in her body. So it just, would this mother really voluntarily have these activities in front of her own children? Or was this forced upon her? It's very confusing, right? Yeah, that's suspicious. Yeah, in addition to all of that, she had hemorrhaging in her skull, indicating that she was either hit on the head with a blunt force object like a hammer, or her head had been smashed into the wall, which is all very, very strange. She also has a lot of um, like uh, markings, like defensive wounds. So she fought until her very last minute, and if she was the first one to go, her followers are just watching her resist all of this with as much energy as she could muster and they're like you know what keep doing it and we'll go next experts that study a lot of religious groups say that just doesn't make sense but the prosecutors they're they're honing in on this they're like that's what it was okay religion sometimes doesn't make sense well i don't even want to categorize this as religion but you get it these cults don't really make sense so what can you do and the reason that the whole scene is so bizarre is because it's probably some sort of ritual or something that's symbolic to this cult that we from the outside cannot understand now about a year later after this case was essentially closed there was a special committee that was appointed to this case to investigate corruption And the chairman to that committee was Chairman Kim. And he does not believe that initial theory. He's like, absolutely not. He believes the government just wanted to get this over with as quickly as possible. The government didn't want to overcomplicate things. So they chalked it up to something that the public could at least wrap their heads around, which is a religious cult. Kim believes that all 32 people were murdered and they were all murdered in a separate location and not in the attic. He thinks the attic was a dumping grounds for 32 bodies. He thinks all 32 people were killed. So the main reason that he brings up is the factory manager, Lee, the one that was found hanging, the one that had allegedly killed everybody else before he killed himself. Kim doesn't believe that this factory worker could have strangled and killed everyone before ending his own life. First of all, Kim argues that for a man to end 30 people's lives, 31 people's lives, it would have taken at least five, six people, and he thinks that's being conservative. The prosecutor, the government, they also say that Lee, the factory manager, he was the one tightening the ropes around everyone. And Kim is saying, even if he's wearing gloves, do you know how much that's going to take a toll on his hands? And there was nothing on his hands. No evidence of swelling that wasn't consistent with decomposition. There was no evidence of abrasions, markings, rope burns, nothing. That's very strange. Another part that really, really brings a lot of people to his theory is that there are different markings around everyone. Technically, you could say that all 32 people died of strangulation. Now, the marks should be different. Everyone else should have different neck marks from the factory manager. Everyone else was strangled by a rope that was tightened around their neck. So that means it would be a full circular ring around their neck. Meanwhile, Lee, the factory manager, was found hanging. That's a very different ligature mark. So they're saying that mark, because you're using the gravity of your body and the weight of your corpse, you have this 
soft spot in your neck that has a little bit of give. So the rope is naturally going to go up into that soft spot and it's going to leave almost this triangular shaped rope in the back. So your ligature mark is not going to go all the way around your neck. There's going to be a little bit of gap between your neck and the rope at the top because gravity is pulling your body down. Yeah, yeah. It shouldn't touch in the back. Yeah. Yes. He had a full ligature mark. A full circle. A full circle. Okay, then somebody else did it. Yeah. Now, you could argue that maybe someone was choking him or he tried to choke himself in that manner and then it didn't work. So then he hanged himself. But it's just very, very strange. There's too many what ifs or like, oh, here's a weird thing that could have happened. So Kim, the chairman, theorizes that people killed all 32 people, wanted all 32 of them dead for whatever reason, and then brought them up to this attic to stage this some sort of mass religious tragedy. He also claims that's why their wrists and their ankles were bound the way that they were bound. Now, Kim argues that if you are tying someone up, okay, let's say you're trying to end someone's life, you're going to tie them up. And when you do, you're going to tie them up really tight. You're going to mm-hmm. make sure that they can't wiggle around or get out of these little bounds. But the way that everyone was tied up was loosely with fabric, like blankets almost, and handkerchiefs. He said, you know what it reminds him of? When you, um, in Korea, we have like these boxes that you tie with like a scarf and you lift it up and you carry it like that. Carry Mm -hmm. it by the knot. So he's thinking that all these people were killed at a second location, a separate location. They had their ankles and their arms bound and people were lifting them up like that into the attic. I mean, to kill, to strangle 32 people, that's going to take a lot of manpower. Yeah, a lot. And moving all of them, like, that's like a huge team. Yeah, and that's why some people debunk his theory and argue for the prosecutor's theory. They're saying that, you know, another thing is, if Kim is arguing that all these bodies were brought into the attic, there's going to be snags and rips on their clothes. Because even if you're super careful, someone's shirt is going to get caught on like a wood plank. None of them had any sort of crazy tears or signs of wear on their clothes. Another thing that the prosecutors argue is that it took about six to seven officers to bring each body down. Just one body. There's not really, It's not stairs that you can take into the attic. It's like mm-hmm. a ladder. So to get these bodies down, and they're saying it must be harder to get them back up. Right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I I don't think that there is one right or wrong answer. That's why I believe that no one truly is going to know what's going on. Like, no one's going to know the truth of what happened in that attic. It's just these are the two very popular theories right now. I will say the government is on the theory that it was a religious incident, but it's just very strange. Now, the biggest question that everyone had, though, was before Park Sunja died, $18 million of corporate funds vanished. So where did it go? First of all, if corporate funds vanish like that, it doesn't seem like someone who's trying to die anytime soon, right? It sounds like someone who's trying to go on the run. Mm-hmm. But where did the $18 million go? Did it go to Park's husband? Where, where is this going? And where did any of the money go? I mean, was she investing the $80 million into different companies? Like, what's going on? So this is where a massive conspiracy theory comes in. And this is a conspiracy theory, and I need to legally state a conspiracy theory is a theory. Just because you believe something to be true does not make it true. It's just what we've seen people talk about on the internet, and I'm just relaying that information to you. So there is a conspiracy theory that Park was a pawn. 
Park was not a religious leader. She wasn't even really the CEO of Five Oceans. She was being utilized by someone even more powerful because all of the money that she was getting in, it seemed to be going. And there's transfer funds. There's literally slips of transfers that have been approved. Like the government has seen this and they're like, yeah, that actually happened between Five Oceans, the company, and a company called Sam Wu Trading. Samu Trading is owned by Yu Byung-un, the billionaire. So she's sending money to him. Yes. And what is he doing? Exactly. And why would she send all that money to him? Why would she risk her life to send him money? Well, a lot of people think it's connected to his church that he started. So we're going to get into the billionaire story now. Yu Byung-un is the leader of, well, he was the leader of the Evangelical Baptist Church in South Korea. And I do need to put a disclaimer that this church is massive. I think there's about 100,000 members in this church globally, and there's different sects. Today? Yeah, today in 2023. Okay. So I feel really good. I feel really safe. I feel really comfortable talking about all of this stuff. I'm very scared. There's a lot of churches in Korea, huh? Yeah, um, there's actually like a whole reason for it. There's actually so many political factors that went into it. Like Korea was in a state of chaos at one point. It's fascinating. But this church in Korea has a lot of subsects. And a lot of these subsects of churches have no connection with the billionaire. Nor did they have connection with him. Like they broke off and started their own thing. They're like, we don't like this guy. We like our church. We're going to start a new church. So not everyone that's in the evangelical Baptist church is bad, nor is it really categorized as a cult. I'm just going to call it an organization for now because I'm legally a little bit cautious right now. But it's very interesting. He starts this church and it's speculated that Park was a member of this church and she started Five Oceans to provide Sam Mu Trading with money, the leader of her church with millions of dollars, But why and how and is this even true and what's going on? So let's talk about Yu Byung-un. Now, these days, Yu Byung-un is a household name for all the wrong reasons because of this Hewar Ferry tragedy and the way that he was hunted down by the police and the way that he died. Everybody knows his name. But keep in mind, back in the day, nobody knew him. He was known as Korea's billionaire without a face. He was incredibly private. Nobody even knows how he became a billionaire. That's how private he was. Like other people, you could be like, oh, well, they started Amazon. They started this, right? This guy, all we know is what he's told his church about his childhood. He said ever since he was a kid, he wanted to be Michelangelo. He wanted to be the next big artist. He said he felt it in his bones that he was someone that was artistic, someone that was creative, that could speak through this kind of language. That was his ultimate dream. But how could he do that when he was born into this poor village family? He was a rather sickly child. Early on, he fought a rather um, tough battle of tuberculosis, and it seems like he never fully recovered. He went through school hoping, you know, I'm just going to find a job to support my family. That's like how a lot of poor village kids his age were thinking. But in high school, he met a group of American Christian missionaries and he said his entire life changed. Not only did he want to get into religion, not only did he become religious, but he wanted to spread the word, which is um, 
arguably the more controversial part of Christianity, but he said that his whole life mission was to help save people, basically. And he was a little bit of an apocalyptic sect, meaning that he felt like the world was going to end anytime soon. So he needed people to be saved soon, because if the world ends in five years and you're not saved, you're shit out of luck, you're going to be in hell. Now, he did have a lot of charisma ever since he was a kid. So he meets a young woman, they get married, and with his father-in-law, he starts a church. And everybody is poor. The whole Yu family, super broke, okay? They've got no money. They're in debt when they start this church, but they're so passionate about their religious teachings. They call the church the Evangelical Baptist Church, aka EBC, or the Salvation Sect. The church, again, like I said, later splits up, so not everyone in EBC is bad or associated with Pyongyang. The church is interesting. The Salvation Sect, his sect, is very interesting and unique. Their teachings are wild. So Pyongyang, the billionaire, told his followers that you earn the right to heaven no matter how bad your sins are. You could kill someone, you could rape a whole village, and you would get to heaven as long as you follow me and you are saved. You only need to be saved once in your lifetime. It's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. So most Christians do not believe that. They feel like you have to live your whole life trying to prevent sin and trying not to sin because that's how you show like you were worthy, right? But he's saying, hey, you could have killed 10 people, but I save you today. You can go on to kill 50 people. There's no take-backsies. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can't take back your salvation. Yeah, it was, um, it's an interesting concept that most Christians absolutely despised. Many Christians that belonged to more mainstream groups stated that Yu Byung-un and his followers were lawless criminals who weren't upholding their faith. The Presbyterian Church of Korea officially categorized Yu Byung-un's church as a violation of Christian belief, and they straight up called them heretics. One of the pastors said, he's a cult leader. He is defied as some sort of Moses or Messiah amongst his followers, and they give him money as he pleases. Yu Byung-un and his followers, they passionately refute this. They say, no, no, no. You hate us because you don't understand us. Because we don't practice the same way that you practice. That's the reason you hate us. One very fascinating thing about this group is how reclusive they are. I mean, the whole church is shrouded in secrecy, which is kind of unheard of. I feel like most religious organizations that don't feel all that religious, don't sue me, but they're kind of wild. Like even JMS, think of all the public events they held, all the videos that have been found online of, you know, JMS out there giving his sermons and his crisp white tuxedos, but not this church. This church was so, so secretive. I mean, it's a major religious organization with tens, if not hundreds of thousands of followers, and yet nobody knows what's going on in there. They do have some weird things that they did, though. Well, I don't want to say weird, but remember how Yu Byung-un, the billionaire, was very sick as a child? Apparently, he taught his followers that germs were really bad. So he stated he hates how other Christians pray before meals and let their little white spicks of spit fall into their food. Yeah, so he had a thing about not praying before meals. <laughs> Interesting take, I tell you. I've never heard that before. But Yu Byung-un was not phased by all these other Christians basically shunning him and his church. They deemed it a cult, but Pyongyang didn't care because within just two decades of starting his church, he was a billionaire. Two decades. Where he collected billions of dollars? Let me tell you, okay? You're thinking billions of dollars in church donations? That's crazy. Not exactly. 
Pyongyun was a businessman before he was a religious leader. The Evangelical Baptist Church ran very differently from other organizations that we've talked about. <laughs> Let me explain by telling you the story of Lim. Lim is a South Korean man who went to his mom's house and saw another box of these supplements that she had just recently become so obsessed with. She's like, these supplements are going to save my life and they're going to save yours. He didn't really understand why she was into squalene. It was like made from shark livers. But maybe that's what happens when you get older. You start looking for ways to stay healthy. He didn't realize it was too late that she was being scammed. Not just scammed, but meticulously targeted, manipulated, and defrauded. Mrs. Lim, his mother, was known in the area as being rich, alone, and very sweet. You know, her kids would check up on her, but they, they're all adults. They have families of their own. She would spend most of her days alone. A group of strangers appeared at her door, asking her questions and helping her around in the kitchen, giving her massages, giving her tips on what to eat to feel more energetic. She loved the conversation. I mean, it was just nice to talk to someone. But the visits became more and more frequent, and they started telling her that if you ever plan to be saved, you know, because you don't have much time left, our religion is pretty easy. You know, other religions so complex. You have to go through this whole process where you have to repent for your sins and you got to do all of this and then you got to do all this good deeds. You don't have to do that. You don't have to read the Bible every day. You simply have to join our church and you'll be saved. They told her it was founded by a billionaire named Yu Byung-un and his father-in-law and they were special. What do you mean they were special? It's hard to explain, but Mrs. Lim, we'll drop off some sermons and you'll see. He's, he's different. And, you know, when you're listening to the sermons and you feel this enormous wave of emotions come to you, you need to write that time down. So they were in the practice of writing down the exact time that they got saved. So Mrs. Lim listens to the tapes alone in her condo and it hit her. She feels these emotions. She wants to cry and she writes down the time and she's like, I've been saved. This is what salvation feels like. But you know what else salvation feels like? Squalene shark liver pills. Yeah, the church sold it. They recommended it and sold it for salvation and they sold it for $1,300 a box. They also sold knickknacks for like $2,000 a jewelry box made out of the shittiest quality material. They sold everything. It's like an MLM inside of a church. Wow. This is not a regular organization that we're talking about. This is straight up QVC MLM meets a church. Mrs. Lim bought box after box after box after box, as well as a bunch of other things that the church insisted that she needed and sold at insanely ridiculous prices. And she couldn't go to the market and be like, you know what? Your squalene is $1,300 and I can find squalene for $10? No, because that's not blessed. Okay, you need to buy this one. They were cluttering up her home. It's speculated that she spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on these items. But the real salvation happened when the salvation sect offered her a rare opportunity not only to get rich but also save the world. They said that they were going to create a business that was coming up with this top-notch medical facility. So they need funds for it and you're going to get returns because once the hospital is up and running, I mean, it's going to be a lot of profit. I mean, think of how great that idea is. And you're saving lives. She forked over half a million dollars in cash to make it happen. She invested half a million dollars, never told her sons and daughters. That was a majority of her remaining assets. 
In exchange, she received a formal official note. Is this sounding similar? Is this sounding familiar to anything? A document explaining the transfer of funds and how she's going to be paid back with returns. And the company that signed this note was the Sam Wu Trading Group. That trading group would file for bankruptcy and they would have $225 million in debt. They would leave Mrs. Lim with nothing. I think even worse than losing the money was she felt completely abandoned in life. She eventually passed away in 2008, and it's said that she was never the same after this betrayal. Now, she was just one of the many people that fell victim to the Salvation Sect, and the Salvation Sect is so fascinating that, hey, they're still around to this day, and the way that they function is bizarre. So this church is a church, their sermons, but they also ask all of the church members to invest in the companies that are basically run by the church. The executives of these companies are run by church members. Most of the employees are church members, allegedly. All of this is kind of, it's like a networking event. A professor who studied Yu Byung-un and his religion said, Yu Byung-un preaches that corporate activities are equivalent to religious activities. He used his followers as a tool to bloat his own wealth. A pastor that made it out of the salvation sect said, Yu Byung-un expanded his business through a system of believers and exploitation of labor. I mean, it's crazy. Imagine if Jeff Bezos started a religion and asked you to donate all your money into his companies because you follow him spiritually. And everything was set up like a pyramid-like structure of dozens of subsidiaries under his holding company, like shell company after shell company after shell company after shell company. A lot of the times, Yu Byung-un's name wasn't even listed as a major shareholder or someone who had heavy interest in the success of these businesses. Most of the times, they would be listed under followers' names that he indirectly controlled, allegedly, or his own children's names or other family members. But it's alleged that Yu Byung-un was the mastermind behind every single company in this web of companies. So the way that it would work is that a new company would come up, Company A, and church believers are now investing in Company A and being promised big fat returns. Mr. Yu Byung-un might not have any direct shares in Company A. He's not a shareholder of Company A, but the largest shareholder of Company A is Company B, and Company B is a subsidiary of Holdings Company C, which Yu Byung-un's two sons were controlling shareholders of. So that's why a lot of people say he's not the de facto owner of any of these businesses, but there is a connection, let's be real. So yeah, on paper, he might not even own company A or have shares or be the CEO of company A, but let's, he's profiting off of company A. Now, one of these companies that started very, very early on, um, before even, I believe, the Odeyang incident, was a ferry company. They made boats and they originally started as just being entertainment ferry boats on the Han River. So during the Olympics in Seoul, they were just taking people around on these cute little ferry rides. And because Yu Byung-un, the billionaire, had so many connections in government, he was able to get all these permits and all these licenses until they became like a full-blown maritime community, a company where they had cargo ships, like all of that, all of that. Some former members of the church have come out to say that Yu Byung-un, maybe not directly, but a lot of them were asked to volunteer to help build these ferries with no knowledge of how to build ferries. 
It's alleged that in the beginning, um, this ferry company would use free labor from church members who had no idea how to build ferries just so they could cut down on costs. It's also speculated that most of the employees that worked at this ferry company were like 99% the church. So if anyone had any safety concerns, they would just get fired. And if you were part of the church, you probably wouldn't have any safety concerns. It's speculated because three of their ferries would end up colliding with the Mapo Bridge during a flood, killing 13 passengers and losing one passenger who is still considered missing. And this is before Sewar. So Samu Trading was investigated but formally cleared of liability. But it's just fascinating to think about considering what we're going to talk about on Wednesday's episode. Now, a former follower of this church said, working hard at these companies that were run by the church was equivalent to salvation. They considered that Bible study. They considered that singing the gospel. That was considered an act of worship. We didn't have to pray anymore. We just had to do three hours at the factory. And these are not small, cute little home businesses. These are massive ones like Chonejin Marine, the ones that owned Sewar Ferry. Pretty sizable company, okay? They had companies that sold toys to the general public. Like you would never even know that this company is run by a church. You're just like, that's a cute toy. Let me buy it. They were the sole distributors of a very fancy chocolate brand called Dubov and Gala. It's like a French chocolate brand. It's super old. It's said to have been a favorite of Mary Antoinette. But they are the sole distributor in America for that chocolate brand. Hmm. Yeah. The family owned an entire village in France. They had a company that sold green tea, a company that sold enema kits to cleanse people's bodies via the butt, companies that sold organic milk, makeup, auto parts, special paint for nuclear plants that have to endure radiation. They had a real estate company, the maritime boat companies. I mean, they had their fingers dipped in everything. Craft companies, tourist toys companies. It was like a spider web of shell companies and subsidiaries. What they would do is they would just buy companies that were about to be bankrupt, put in a bunch of church members, allegedly, and ask people to invest in it. It said that they were involved with at least 70 companies on three different continents, some in their own names, others through other people's names. It was so, so complicated. So complicated. They even own one of the biggest organic lavender farms in Southern California. So this is not like a cute little business idea that a church makes. It made the Yu family one of the richest families in South Korea, but hardly anyone knew about them. They were not always in the papers like the Samsung Chebars, the Korean Air Chebars. They were the billionaires with no face. They flew under their radar, but their power, influence, and money is so terrifying to think about. So the families would get paid millions of dollars through this company, even if it wasn't just through the shares. And how do you do that, you ask? The companies would make up random, okay, I don't want to say this legally speaking, but in my opinion, they would make up random reasons that they had to pay the you billionaire family millions of dollars. So the ferry company, for example, allegedly paid Yu's eldest son $1.4 million for the right to use the name to one of the ferries. The other Yu family son apparently was paid for the rights to the name Sewar, the name of the ferry that sank and killed hundreds of people that we're talking about on Wednesday. I don't know for sure if the company paid to use that name, but apparently he owned the trademark for it. So they would make up these, I don't want to say false because I guess they're accurate, but these almost unbelievable from an ethical sense reasons why they had to pay the Yu family millions of dollars. They're like, the Yu family named one of our products, so we must pay them $2 million in royalties. 
and that would be considered a business expense on the final papers. It just seemed like the family had a million ways to make a million dollars, and all of it seemed to fall into morally gray territory depending on who you ask. So early on in their church, Pyongun acquired a failing business, Samu Trading, and then he starts adding all these new businesses. And one of the companies that was funneling massive amounts of money into Samu Trading was Five Oceans. So once that connection was made, Yu Byung-un's assistant was arrested. Because all the funds that passed from Odeyang to Samu Trading all went through his assistant, and she was basically thrown under the bus. It came out that when Park was in debt, she was being investigated, she was on the run, and she asked Yu Byung-un, the billionaire that she's connected to, for help, and allegedly, he refused. There was another note found at the crime scene. A note that said, Sam Wu is also suffering. Indicating someone gave her the news that Sam Wu Trading could not give her money because they too were suffering. Now this is where it gets very tricky. You would think, okay, that's one and done. They're connected. He must be involved in something illegal, right? Yu Byung-un was arrested in 1991 for the Five Oceans incident. But because the actual deaths of these 32 people were ruled a mass suicide, Pyongyang cannot be connected to it. And the prosecutors alleged that they couldn't find any link with him and the deaths. I'm not saying the Five Oceans company or the scams, just the deaths. Years after 32 people died, Yu Pyongyang was, this was a rare occasion, he was interviewed and he said, I just feel really insulted that people link me to the accident. Do you know how I feel? I feel like I'm a woman living in a small village and one day I suddenly got sexually assaulted. And it's really unfair, you know? But I can't talk about it because, you know, Korean culture, they'll just have more rumors and it gets out of control and then I'll be the one at fault. That's how I feel. Oh, what is that analogy? I don't know. It's the, like, first of all, what? 32 people died. Okay, second of all, but you're not a woman that's been sexually assaulted. You're a rich man in a deeply patriarchal society. So shut up. <laughs> like what a bizarre thing to say. But Yu Byung-un is not connected to the Five Oceans incident legally. Even though he's not, there are a lot of open questions though. Technically, the police have decided what they think happened and they think that it was mass suicide. But I don't know, just these loose ends, I don't think anyone will really know what happened in that attic. Yu Byung-un was convicted on charges of defrauding his church members. Prosecutors stated that he uses church funds and property to expand his own business and wealth. They said that he committed habitual fraud under the mask of religion. He denied those charges, but he was found guilty and thrown in prison for four years. When he got out, similar to what happens to most people that have a lot of admiration for them, his followers only believed in him more. They believed that he was wrongly persecuted. Yu Byung-un even recorded a sermon to his followers that said, things are tough for us right now. Other people treat us like koles, like rags, like dish rags. But we need to remember, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad. I will state again for the record, the prosecutor's office did confirm that no connection between Yu Byung-un and the Odeyang incident with the 32 people in the attic, there was no connection. He's not legally held accountable. But there's more. After Sam Wu 
trading files for bankruptcy. The Yu family business is still in business and they're still continuing to operate at least like 30 different companies allegedly. According to chebar.com, they still had 30 different subsidiaries and had 13 big holding companies in other areas like the US, Hong Kong, and France. And after the Odeyong scandal, people originally had no idea who this Yu Byung-un billionaire was. They were like, what? A church billionaire? This is crazy. Then the incident puts him in national spotlight. And after the scandal, if you could even call it a scandal because it's literally mass death, but the family spent tens of millions of dollars on PR, on rebranding Mr. Yu. He stopped even recognizing the fact that he was a part of a religious group. He refused to acknowledge that he was a preacher, a church leader, a founder of a church. Instead, he became known as his pseudonym, Ahe. Ahe in traditional Korean means little child, which if we're going to put our tin foil hats on, I know, I know. If we're heading into rich people conspiracy territory, what a questionable name, okay? but they reinvented him as some sort of profound artistic genius. The family donated millions of dollars to the Louvre, and he has a gold plaque on the wall with his pseudonym Ahe on there, as of right now still. And... Okay. Yeah, they started um, asking massive art institutions to show his pieces. He held an exhibit at the Grand Central Terminal. Oh, his own artwork. Oh, yeah. His own. Oh. Not, a, not his collection. His oh. artwork. So he paints or what? He takes pictures outside of his window. Oh, it's a photog? Yeah. It's just a photo. Yeah. Oh, wait, let me tell you. Okay. Is it good? <laughs> Bro. I'm about to go on a whole rant, okay? (sighs) He held an exhibit at the Grand Central Terminal in New York City in 2011, which is speculated to have cost the family at least a million or two million dollars. It's speculated that the family spent another six million dollars plus to exhibit his work at the Palace of Versailles. Side note, the London Symphony Orchestra played during an event at this exhibit and they premiered a new piece, Symphony Number 6 Ahe, named after him and a tribute to him, a billionaire with subpar photography skills that allegedly paid his way into this exhibit. Wow. The family seems very, very litigation and sue happy, but I said what I said. Art is a personal opinion, and I don't think it's that great, okay? It's mediocre at best, and that is... You can't legally get me for saying I don't enjoy someone's art, okay? Having money does not mean that you are talented at everything that you try, and that's okay. He took blurry landscape photos out of his multi-million dollar estate window, and he called it art. So he said that he was inspired by his prison sentence staring out the window for four days, and he would see the changes in nature and the world. It was called Through My Window. Another one was called Finding the Extraordinary and the Ordinary or something, which like, yeah, okay, if I'm a millionaire, I better find the extraordinary in the ordinary. Like, you better believe if I own a multi-million dollar complex, the view better be nice enough for a pick or two, okay? But it's said that after this PR rebrand, um, Yu Byung-un became even more mysterious. It's alleged that he went into his tortured artist role. He stopped allowing photographs unless it was from his back or his side or his camera was covering the majority of his face. So there's not a lot of pictures you can find on him or his children. The whole family is very, very mysterious, which is crazy because Yu Byung-un's niece is actually married to one of the most influential names in K-pop. And nobody knew. Who? JYP. 
and we're gonna get into it. Wait, 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 wait. JYP is married to the family. To his niece. What? So Yoo Byung-un's brother's daughter is JYP's second wife, and they're still currently married. And during this Hewar ferry accident. It, it got really crazy and we're going to get into it. And I'm not saying that he's associated with any of their shady business or religious dealings. You can't even pick, find a picture of his wife online. They're very wow. mysterious. Yeah. <sighs> well, at least I couldn't find a picture of his wife online. Very, very mysterious people. But anyway, Ahe, the new man, the new billionaire, described himself on his website as an inventor, entrepreneur, philanthropist, environment activist, martial artist, by the way, he and most of his kids were black belt. Taekwondo, I believe. Painter, sculptor, poet, and photographer. His website stated the exhibitions were a way to increase public awareness of the beauty of nature and the need to preserve the natural environment. And it's fascinating to see the switch up that even mainstream news outlets have made after he was associated with this Hewar fairy tragedy. So after the Five Oceans incident, that was just well known in Korea. It didn't become international news. He rebranded. Everyone just knew him as this mysterious billionaire from South Korea. This artist that was giving back to nature. People, big, big institutions would write things like, The Economist wrote this. Ahe's forensic attention to detail reveals the stoicism, dignity, and minor dramas of the animals going about their daily business and raises these pictures into the realm of poetry, a kind of surrealist representation of a single day. It's really like he's lived so many different lives. Yes. Like they're writing this about blurry pictures taken outside a billionaire's window. Yeah. Now get this. During this time, it's alleged that Yu Byung-un was still running tens of companies and still getting investments. And I don't know if he starts asking these companies to purchase his art or if they volunteer to, but he started selling his art to these subsidiary companies sometimes for as much as $22,000 a photo, and they would buy a lot of them. Each company would pay for tens of thousands of dollars for his art, and it's alleged that part of the reason that this Hewer Ferry even sank in the first place was because of his art. Not fully, but it was a factor. Yeah, so I totally get it. Sometimes you want to benefit all your friends' companies, and if this is a good investment, why not, right? But there's no such record of his art selling for as much or for anything in the real world. Like it was never auctioned off at Christie's or Sotheby's for any price. So very little evidence that his art had actual market value. An art curator in New York City said, my informed opinion as a museum creator for the last curator for the last 15 years is that there is no market for these works at any price. You couldn't even give them away, honestly, for free. So it seemed like another one of those morally gray areas of like, what's going on here? I mean, I think you and I both know what's going on, but legally, I can't tell you what's going on. Now, one of those companies that was said to have spent over $100,000 on purchasing his art was the failing, financially struggling boat company that owned this Hewar Ferry that we're going to talk about on Wednesday. A lot of corruption. Now, he is known as Ahe, the billionaire without the face. And then in 2014, this Hewar Ferry sinks, killing 300 plus people. Financial records detailed that the parent company that owned this ferry that was controlled by the Yu family, well, at least his two sons, 
They were spending millions of dollars and giving it to the Yu family and spending about $2 per employee to train them on what happens in the case of a major emergency. $2 in training. The entire boat capsized and nobody knew what to do. And there were so many reasons. The boat was not up to regulation. There were so many factors on why it sank and why it was as disastrous as it was. And the prosecutors, they wanted Yu Byung-un, the billionaire, to go down for the ferry. But the ever-mysterious billionaire was nowhere to be found all of a sudden. And around 2014, when the ferry went down and people were looking for Yu Byung-un and his whole family, Oh Dae-young kept coming up too. Because people were like, wait a minute. Who is this guy? Who is this guy that we've never heard of that opens this company that's apparently part of a Chebar family? And why does his name keep coming up about a mass incident that happened years ago, decades ago, where 32 people were found dead in an attic? And all these connections were being made. So the whole family is nowhere to be seen. They were summoned to report to the prosecution's office. They never came, okay? They were being questioned for embezzlement, tax evasion, amongst other things. It was really bad. This was actually the biggest manhunt to date in South Korea, hunting down Yu Byung-un and the Yu family members. And it's actually become a sore spot. Over 10,000 officers were deployed. It was an internationally coordinated struggle to get everyone because a few of his kids were overseas. One of his kids is married to an American citizen, lives in the U.S. I think his daughter lives in Paris. So that's where she was apprehended. And it was just bad. They're just as elusive as their father. I guess they learn from the best. They're not like the rich Kids on social media flaunting their wealth. Literally, nobody even knew what they really looked like. So the kids get taken in, most of them, and Mr. Yu is still nowhere to be found. Until he's found dead. He was found dead a week after they searched his holiday home, and he was found dead in the apricot field outside of his holiday home a week later. So the police are like, what's going on? And the public is like, are you dumb? And the whole thing about this being a religion, while they were searching all of Mr. Yu's properties, he had a 115-acre compound where his church sat. They had freshwater farms for fish. They were really into organic farming. It's kind of giving, you know, one of those organizations. But there was a banner outside where these believers sat in front of the gate to block the 6,000 officers that were trying to storm the place. And the banner read, we'll protect Yu Byung-un even if 100,000 church members are all arrested. You say there were 6,000? Officers. 6,000 officers? They came in with like ground digging technology because they thought that he would have an underground bunker, tunnels for escaping, like movie style 6,000 officers were involved. I'm sure some of them were delegated to paperwork and not at the site, but 6,000 officers were involved in the search of his 115-acre church compound. Wow. And in total, I think 10,000 officers were involved in the manhunt for Yu Byung-un. One church member even screamed, I'm ready to be killed in protection for Yu Byung-un. So, yeah, I mean, they don't say that they're a cult, but like, that's kind of crazy, okay? Now, the extent of Yu's influence, power, and money is truly terrifying. There was even a list going around while he was on the run called the Yu Byung-un list with a bunch of names that he had been rubbing shoulders with, and they were all people in powerful positions of politics, government, media positions. So, JYP, he is married to the niece of Yu Byung-un. 
So Yu's brother's daughter is married to JYP. And just as mysterious as the rest of the family, truly, like most people that I found online didn't even know that JYP was married a second time. But again, the marriage doesn't mean that he's connected to anything shady. I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying that. But this was a topic of conversation that came up. JYP was in such hot water after the Sewar Ferry tragedy and this manhunt for the Yu family started. He had to put out a statement, well, a tweet rather, that said, the fact that my wife is related to the owner of a problematic company is irrelevant. So is this a country that can just say whatever they want now? In relation to my faith, you would know if you listen to all my interviews that I've done and the music that I've put out for the past couple of years, I've studied a lot of different religions, but I have no religion. I hope that no more baseless rumors start coming out. Due to this incident, JYP was investigated for fraudulent funds. There was speculation that he was also like a subsidiary that belonged to the church and maybe there were church funds going in and out of this and um, it was proven to be false. The company even said on record that not even a single penny will show illegal funds have flowed into JYP. They also said that they will be taking strict action against people circulating or creating rumors and lies. So even the prosecutor's office, I mean, there were a few of them on the Yu Byung-un list, the prosecutor's office. So the scope of his influence amongst the elites in Korea, I mean, is unknown. Now, he dies. They find a dead body one mile away from his little holiday home in an apricot orchard. And the police are like, this is the body of a man without a home. So it's like a what? Cover up? You think they don't care or either okay the general public is saying this level of incompetence doesn't exist right yeah so So it sounds sketchy right it sounds very sketchy they said also a lot of things because you know why would there be a rotting corpse of a man without a home wearing an italian made jacket with yu byung-un's book next to him with shark liver pills yeah yeah totally like just a random man without a home and it's so close to his holiday home. Like, why would you even think that? That Why would that even come to your mind? I have no words, right? They, they were forced to run DNA on the body and use brother. And they realized it was a familial match. Now, they released that it was a familial match. They also ran fingerprints. But this is where it gets crazy. South Koreans were like, but you just told us his body was so badly decomposed. There are rumors that his head was separated from his body. And that you thought, because he was so badly decomposed... That he was a man without a home. You didn't even think he was Yu Byung-un. How were his fingerprints still intact? Exactly. There was never really a response to that. But did they match the fingerprint? Yeah, they said it is Yu Byung-un. We oh. matched DNA and fingerprints. But they're like, how did you match fingerprints? Oh, yeah. So they were lying the first time. Yeah. No, no, no. We don't know if they went back and matched fingerprints. Yeah. They're just like, we did. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're like, okay what like we're just going off what they tell us to trust i mean it just seems like the dumbest thing ever and i'm not trying to say i'm a conspiracy theorist and i think he's alive and this is a fake body but it's just bizarre headlines read the incompetence of police and prosecutors is simply astounding astounding i tell you and members of his church state to this day that this was a witch hunt set by the South Korean government because they did not want to take responsibility for the tragedy. And they state that Yu Byung-un has retired from all of his managerial positions in 1997, has focused solely on photography, and he doesn't even own shares in the ferry company. But either way, Yu Byung-un is said to be dead. Rumors, of course, start that he's not dead. There have been sightings of him, quote, sightings of him in China. 
And I don't know because I, I mean, do you really even know what this guy looks like? And like, who's saying they saw him? There's a bunch of sightings of everyone everywhere, but that's the speculation out there. Is he dead? Was he not dead? How involved is he in all of these tragedies? And how many lives did this guy live? And how many more things is he connected to that we just don't know about? And how many things are going on behind the scenes that the general public has no idea about? Because if it wasn't for the ferry accident, we wouldn't even really be talking about his connection with the Five Oceans incident. Or we wouldn't even know all of these subsidiary shell company holdings, all of that. There's also another theory that he was murdered, but um, we're not going to get into that. So anyway, there's also another theory that he's in France and on his hilltop village that he purchased. So I don't know. The guy has money and power everywhere. So what do I know? I don't know anything, according to my lawyer and myself. And But this is the case of the Odeyang incident where 32 bodies were found in an attic and how a billionaire's name keeps popping up in that tragedy and popping up again on Wednesday. We're going to do a deep dive, but I think it was just, I felt like it'd be important for you to know who this guy is and all the things that he's associated with and how the companies that he runs are being operated. So I will see you guys on Wednesday to talk about this Hewar Ferry and please stay safe and I'll see you guys on Wednesday. Bye.